Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Dan Bloom joined the first VFA class, taking a chance on what was then a startup organization in VFA. The Boston area native who graduated from Wesleyan and was actually their, their, uh, their student athlete of the year as a wrestler, moved to Cincinnati after, his, um, after training camp to join Black Book HR. He and his VFA training camp roommate, Brian Boucher, joined forces after their, fe- their respective fellowships, Brian in Detroit and Dan in Cincinnati, as I noted, um, to start TurnPro, a company which aggregated and edited GoPro videos to create content for corporate clients. In doing so, they noticed a problem and set up to solve that problem. They discovered there wasn't a good way to manage video content online. They launched Slope, which is a software tool to help marketing and creative teams collaborate as they produce content. They entered the Microsoft Venture Accelerator. They won GeekWire Startup Day pitch off and raised $1.5 million in funding. And the rest of the story is being written as we speak. We're thrilled to have Dan Bloom on the VFA podcast today. I am your host, Jeremy Scheinwald. I've been a longtime uh, volunteer, mentor, board member, and now avid podcaster for Venture for America. This is probably our, I don't know, 75th episode or so, hopefully engaging many entrepreneurs and, uh, and aspiring fellows in VFA. What is VFA? Well, after five weeks of training VFA fellows, it's a fellowship. They spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship network and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, you can visit ventureforamerica.org. I hope you are or are becoming a loyal listener to our podcast. Please take a moment to like our show on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Scheinwald. We love listeners. Tell someone about our show, like our show, so that more people can experience our content. And enough of this long-winded intro. Here is our show, our interview with Dan Bloom. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Dan, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. You bet. So you are like a, you're a homegrown success. Local boy makes good. You were in the very first VFA class. How did you uh, how did you find the and I mean find it literally in terms of found like you know how did you identify locate or how did it locate you the VFA in way back in 2011? Yeah, I was uh, working at Wesleyan University at the time, so I'm one of the older fellows. Uh, I was two years out of college, and I was working at Wesleyan University uh, doing fundraising and coaching the wrestling team. And a friend of mine who had known the type of work that I was doing and how kind of at times I was frustrated with the structures of university life um, was like, hey, there's this program that the founder's coming to speak. I think you should go listen to him because I think you're going to resonate with what it means to be an entrepreneur. 
and I went and heard Andrew talk and I'd never, I was never interested in business. I was always uh, thinking I was gonna be a PhD history and so I was already like getting ready to take the GREs and then I heard him talk and I was like, holy crap, like I was made for this. <coughs> um, and I learned more about it. I started talking to more of the business uh, alumni uh, in the Wesleyan community and just kind of realized this was definitely the path I wanted to go down and applied. And uh, kind of a funny story about my application process, which we, I guess we can talk about at some point. But <laughs> go, go for uh, it. Yeah, so basically I applied and uh, went well, I'll through. Just, I'll just back away from the mic. You just keep talking. Okay. And you know, we'll just polish <laughs> off 45 minutes of you in this little grid. This is uh, my dream. Yeah, okay. So, 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 tell, so yeah, tell me about the application process. Yeah, so I mean, it's a very in-depth application process. Uh, but there was one section where you have like a, a one-shot take-all video like submit a video and they ask you a question you have no idea what it's going to say and i remember the prompt that they were practicing on was like it was like tell us about yourself so i'm practicing you know things about me like what's going to be a good thing and then it turns out to be this like crazy business scenario and i just bombed it right. and then i didn't get called back and so i was put on the wait list and so for every every week i had on my calendar at work just email vfa and so for three i think it was like two or three months every wednesday i would email eileen uh, and andrew and just be like hey still really interested would love to be a part of this i know i'd be a perfect fit for this program please give me another shot <laughs> and uh eventually andrew came back to wesleyan to do one more info session and i cornered him with like all of my resumes and just like <laughs> threw them at him until he talked to me and uh eventually i got invited to selection day and ended up getting to the program it's funny how that works like you know the i, I actually have a very similar story when i applied to be uh to be to work for the uh, the israeli embassy in, in washington dc i just called them every friday for eight weeks and and it's I, I've, when I've retold that story, I thought to myself, like, you know, I I wonder if I was just naive and didn't understand how detrimental that could have been, and like <laughs> it just kind of worked out, or whether that kind of persistence is actually helpful. And like, I think you're making me think, like, as long as you do it with a certain amount of like charm, and the persistence isn't like cloying or you know right. uh, overbearing, I guess yeah, it can work. That I ended up talking to Andrew about it after the fact, right. and he was just like, yeah, I mean. You were very polite, and you were just sent, letting us know that you were still interested. You weren't being right. like, "Take me," or you know, "Everyone's right. going to hell." It was, it was. It was very. I tried to be pretty respectful about it, and uh, I think I'll never forget the. I got a message from Andrew when I got into the program. It was like, "Hey, Dan, just Andrew Yang here. Kind of let you know that like sometimes persistence pays off." That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm curious. So you, you, you it's interesting. You had no, um, you know, entrepreneurial aspirations until you found the program. Were you around entrepreneurs at all growing up, or was there any entrepreneurial e ecosystem, or this is just sort of like one day a light bulb? turn around and you're like, damn it, I can do this. Yeah, th there was no entrepreneurial or business blood in my veins. Uh, yeah. My dad's an English professor. My mom's a therapist. Uh, my mom's actually an entrepreneur. She creates uh, board games uh, that are focused around uh, or have therapeutic centers. So cool. she makes like uh, all kinds of interesting stuff. But um, I've always been an entrepreneur when it comes to finding ways to make money. Uh, one of the deals that I, when I went to Wesleyan was that, okay, if I'm going to go to private school, I'm going to work. And so when I got to college, uh, I had two or three jobs on campus at all times. And then in the summers, I would basically be the odd job machine, whether it was landscaping, lifeguarding, babysitting, kind of you name it. I was always finding ways to, to make money. And I just had never even thought about that as a career. Okay. Well, so you you you're in the so you're you complete the fellow the fellowship, but um, we'll talk about the the fellowship in a moment. But I'm this is so looking back on the fellowship here is what I'm trying to get at. Um, Eileen, who you mentioned, uh, former VP at uh, at uh, or former COO, I think I'm getting her yeah. title and correct. Um, and and on the founding team at VFA and a wonderful person um, wrote on your LinkedIn. Dan proved to be an incredibly professional and persistent um, individual. Who's known 
known as the cohort's main source of spirit, energy, and support. So, you know, I mean, put this into into words and, and actions for us. You know, what what does this mean? Like, how are you of spirit, energy, and support to this class? Uh, I think I'm just a pretty positive person overall. I mean, it's pretty hard to put me in a situation where I'm going to be pretty negative. And I think that as the founding class of VFA, we came into a very unknown situation. We didn't know what the program was going to be like. We didn't know what training camp was going to be like. There was no precedent for this. And so... Um, I think I just approached it, and I mean, most of us did, but I think I'm pretty vocal. I was captain of the wrestling team in college. Like, I'm used to kind of leading by example in that way. And so I was just, you know, everything they threw at us, it was just like, this is awesome. This is a challenge. Let's let's approach it the right way. Right. And so, um, and I'm, I'm a generally supportive person. I mean, I was brought up by my mom, who's a therapist. My sister's a therapist. I'm kind of surrounded by women who are thoughtful and uh, right. emotive. And uh, <laughs> I think that that has rubbed off on me for sure. So um, it was definitely a, a really nice thing for Eileen to say. And uh, I definitely felt like uh, I always was trying to encourage positive energy in the program and uh, with the cohort. I think I spoke to your bootcamp class I, I, with Eric Cantor. We came in and spoke. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, if I recall, at the end of that, I predicted some sort of uh, um, tech blow up that never happened. <laughs> but I, I figured if I keep predicting, there's for the still next time. Five, ten years, eventually, I'll be right. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you met your co-founder Brian Bash. Am I, I hope I'm Boche. 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 Okay, uh, uh, through VFA, um, you were training camp roommates. Was this entrepreneurial love at first sight when you met him? Were you like, this is the guy I'm going to start a company with, or did it just happen later? I mean, I, I think anyone will tell you about me during the program. I was not the guy that was like, I'm starting a company. I was always the guy that was kind of along for the ride a little bit. I loved the program. I really wanted to learn about startups and working at a small company. Uh, but I was never the one coming up with like a million business ideas. That's not that's not who I thought I was, was going to be. Um, but that kind of turned out to be false. So when I met Brian, we just got along really well. We, we really do have the same... Um, ethos and values, which definitely are instilled by VFA, but I think both of us are just really honest, kind of transparent people, which as a business partner is a pretty incredible trait. We never have to worry about the other one hiding anything from anyone else or uh, concerned about morality issues, anything like that. Um, But it it was definitely love at first sight as friend and kind of confidant. Uh, I would say that it took a lot longer for us to figure out that uh, starting a business together was something we were ultimately going to want to do. You're a man who's driven by fortuity here. You know, you just sort of <laughs> fa- fell into the into the fellowship, and then you fell into your your partnership. You just, I suppose you're, you're maybe I'm I'm putting it in the in the wrong way. Maybe you're someone who you know seizes an opportunity when you see it. Um, okay, so you so you you finish the 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 boot camp um, in Providence, uh, which I visited, and and uh, it grows every year. It was a you know a mm-hmm. nascent organization at the time. Now it's pretty well established. Um, and you headed off to Cincinnati uh, to join Blackbook HR as director of implementation. What, is, what does that What does that mean? And were you like walking out of out of out of um, you know training camp, saying to yourself like, okay, so I've got a five week training and it is very rigorous, and you know, but I was I was at, you know Wesleyan as a fundraiser, and now I've done this five week training, and now I'm supposed to be like a director level at a startup. And were you daunted by? It? Were you like I'm ready to do this thing? No, I don't. I don't think I was ever super intimidated. I think, and this is something that VFA instills in you is just be a learner. Just be someone that's r- humble and ready to just ask a lot of questions and figure it out. Um, you know, I, the most important thing to me was understanding the business. And I was in an awesome situation where I was literally the right-hand guy to the founder. So I got to be a part of every decision. It was just the two of you? The, the uh, there were, originally there were three of us, and then eventually it grew to about six. Um, and then 
lots of interesting things happened, uh, and I left after 18 months. Okay. Um, but it was it was really an amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yada yada yada. <laughs> yeah, uh, I ended up working at two different startups in Cincinnati. Okay. Uh, and th- but the. There was definitely nothing intimidating about the director level. I think there was something when I got there. He was like, "What, what, what do you want your title to be?" And I was like, "I don't know, something about operations, maybe." Uh, and he was like, "How about the Prince of Operations?" And for a while, I had a card that said Dan Bloom, <laughs> Prince of Operations, which was ridiculous yeah, uh, and hilarious. Uh, and yeah. I think at the end of the day, that was kind of my first um, experience of realizing that titles don't really matter. All that matters is like getting the work done and like providing value to the business. And so it didn't matter what my card said. It could have said, you know. Um, employee number seven who doesn't matter but right. uh, if I had done my job well and uh, contributed to the business I would have felt pretty good about it right what uh, okay so I got I've got to pursue that uh, so 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 what happened that you, that you that you moved on mid fellowship I think it's for someone who's listening who's interested in the fellowship you know it, 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 it is fair to say like you know sometimes like just like any job you know things don't work and you you make a move so yeah I would say it was a, it's a startup and there were highs and lows you know I got to close a pretty big contract. That was a really great thing. And we got to hire some engineers. We hired another COO. Like, there were lots of really cool things that I was a part of. Um, but at the end of the day, I there were certain types of experiences I was seeking once I kind of got you know, six months to 18 months under my belt. And I, I wasn't feeling like I was going to be able to pursue them there. Um, the company was in pretty good shape. We had actually just brought in a new CEO so that the current CEO had been running it for a long time, kind of take a step back and do some focus on marketing, which is what he was really great at. Um, and so I kind of helped with that transition a little bit, and then I decided I wanted to pursue a new avenue. And that was when I kind of, I didn't have anything planned, I just kind of said, I'm done. Um, and ended up talking to a lot of entrepreneurs in, in uh, Cincinnati. And then uh, there's a company called Donday that had just come through the Brandry, which is the startup accelerator in Cincinnati. Right. And uh, I was, I'd gotten to know the founder of that company, and they were basically a tech team with him as the founder and not a lot of uh, business side support. So I came on as really the first non-technical hire, full-time hire, and basically helped that company grow from you know, a, a handful of clients to a couple hundred clients, and then they ended up getting purchased by Mobify, right, uh, which so. is a company out of Vancouver, uh, which was a really cool process to be a part of. And uh, and during that whole time, I was working with Brian on our side project that turned into a business. <laughs> so I'm curious. I'm curious about your time in Cincinnati because when you talk to fellows from Detroit, they yearn for Detroit the way you know I'm Jewish. You know, you know people yearn for Israel or mm-hmm. uh, you know the Italians. You know, yearn for Italy or something like that. Is there that same kind of like we're here to build Cincinnati? among the Cincinnati fellows? I think it's interesting. I think among the original class, for sure, uh, Cincinnati went through an incredible transformation while we were there. When I showed up, I moved into an apartment that was on 14th Street on Cincinnati where literally every building but mine was boarded up. Like, not like, oh, every building was boarded up, like I'm making that up. Like, actually, Mm -hmm. like, wood on walls, bars on doors, everything boarded up except my building. And then you had to walk two blocks south to get to where the kind of resurgence of Cincinnati was happening. By the time I left, my whole block was either under construction or occupied. There were bars and restaurants on every corner in every direction. There were more people walking around town than I probably saw my first six months there, um, like on any given day. Right. It was really an incredible moment to be there. And I, I mean, and you can talk to pretty much anyone in Cincinnati that knew me. I am like the biggest advocate of Cincinnati. <laughs> I absolutely fell in love with the city. Um, it was very hard when I had to leave. Um, and I actually recruited my best friend to 
to Cincinnati from Austin and helped him uh, kind of meet some folks who I'm not sure if you've heard of Rheingeist Brewery, one of the fastest growing breweries in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived with the guy who was the founder and oh, he was looking for a like, great operation sales guy. And my friend was in, in love with craft beer, hooked them up. And then he went on to, he's still working there now. Um, and then, and then Ryan Geist became a company that hires VFA fellows. So I chatted with Dan before the show and he was telling about his current living situation here in, in New York. And it seems like this is a guy who's not afraid to live in a boarded up house. That's, <laughs> so, you know, uh, so he's, he's, he's slumming in New York right now. The real gritty entrepreneur that he is, he's, he's got, he's got a, a, a pretty small rental room, uh, which is, I, I think great. He's, uh, saving his money to invest in his company. featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So um, y- you mentioned like while you were at, at, at Donde, um, you, you know, you started building what was then um, TurnPro, uh, you know, and, and I mean, how did you, was that like a discrete project? Were they aware of it? Was it something that, where did you find the time as you were, you know, sort of, you had a lot going on? That is the question. Um, No, I was very, when he hired me, I told him, hey, you know, by the way, I'm doing this thing on the side. It's kind of video production-y. I was really interested in starting a project with my friend Brian. If that's going to be a problem, let me know and I will scale that back. And he said, look, as long as you get your job done, like you can do whatever the hell you want in your free time. Um, and so the reality was it was just a lot of hours. Like I was never off really. Right. It was, I would be working uh, at Donde full-time traveling a ton for them, going to trade shows. And then at the same time, fielding emails and helping Brian uh, sell video projects and work out some of the kinks of our financial model. And literally everything that comes with like starting a business. Um, I was, Brian was really doing the lion's share of it in the early get-go, but I was moonlighting and helping, you know, until the wee hours of the night. Uh, most days. So, and like, what do you take from from you know Black Book and and Donde? Um, you know, do you think like were those experiences critical to you avoiding certain mistakes when oh, you started Turn Pro? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most important things, at least for me, was the tooling, like the entrepreneurial tooling, like having the right set of like software products to launch something. So for example, like knowing how to use setting up like the G Suite and like Google for Business, like all the the things that like you think are like so intuitive, but there's I so have many no ways idea to what mess that up. Is. So well, it's not that intuitive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like setting up your email properly. Okay. Um, knowing who like the good startup lawyers are. Like there, there's just like a million things, like little things that I learned about from them. And honestly, and and I loved the both of the founders I worked for, and I still keep in touch with them. But I learned a lot about ways that I would do things differently. And I think that was the biggest takeaway. Like I would. See the way that uh, they handle situations and I had like a journal at the time and I would write down like you know if I were to ever be in this situation you know what are the different other ways I could approach that um, and that could be anything from hey we're six months away from running out of money how do you what are, what are the steps here it could be we have a customer cancel on us how do you handle that situation anything from you know any one of those scenarios like I got to be in the room and I, I guess mm. to quote Hamilton like mm. I was in the room where it happens <laughs> and uh, to me that was always uh incredibly informative and and helpful in shaping the type of founder I wanted to be. And again, until Brian and I started the company, there was no part of me that was like, I'm going to be a founder. Mm. It was always just, I'm enjoying the startup world. Right. 
My wife will never admit this, but she fell asleep during Hamilton. She will never, <laughs> she will never admit that publicly, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on the record here. During this conversation about your entrepreneurial career, I'm going to bring that up. Uh, so, 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 you know, TurnPro, um, you know, gets going and, um, you know, like, like, but what, like, what was it? Like, why did you, what was the, 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 you know, the, the itch that needed to be scratched to get, like, how did you identify that opportunity for TurnPro? Yeah. So Brian was in a meeting or at, uh, so Dan Gilbert, the founder of, uh, Quicken Loans, uh, he is basically the unofficial mayor of Detroit and right. his family accompanies, he had a meeting and he was going through their YouTube channels. Like he just started pulling up all his company's YouTube channels and being like, this is terrible, this is terrible. Um, we need to do better video work. And Brian called me up knowing that I've always had an interest in video. I've always been a bit of a tinkerer um, on the creative side. And he said, hey, like I've got this idea about producing video. Detroit's a really good creative community. All the companies have like a new focus on wanting to produce video. I think there's an opportunity to just see if you and I can build a company together. And I was like, that sounds great. Let's do that. Uh, and so the original model was we were like, you know, we, did, we weren't videographers. So we said, okay, here's an idea. Let's take GoPros and we'll build a subscription model where you can basically go and rent a package of GoPros and we'll send them to you. So if you're a business and you wanna record like an outing that you're having, or if you're someone, a family taking a trip, uh, whatever you wanna do, you, we'll give you all the GoPros, you take all the footage, you send them back, we make you a video. Uh, we got a couple customers with it, it wasn't a very good business model, um, but we got it. Some of the customers started wanting better videos. They said, "Hey, can you come do like a, a talking head video for our for our CEO, or can you come do a, a product video?" And we basically took that as a sign of like, "Oh, they like our work. Let's double down on that." And so we hired our. We had two, or we had a couple of videographers who were kind of freelancing for us, and we just hired them full time and became a full service video production company and then ran that for about a year and a half. So TurnPro yields the insight that becomes that, uh, you know, facilitates slow, slope. Mm -hmm. So, t I mean, tell us about, tell us about the insight that, that you got from running TurnPro. Yeah, it, running a creative agency is very frustrating because there's no, unless you get put on retainer by some business, you really don't know where your next project right. is coming from. Um, and that's kind of the fear of every agency um, is, you know, there could be a month where something doesn't show up and then you're stuck with all the overhead and no business. Right. Um, and so basically we did a really nice job of building the business pretty uh, organically and, and just word of mouth and then producing some good work. And then that would spread uh, having repeat customers. It was, it was really exciting to kind of do that together. But we, as we started to scale and get more projects, we were using a lot of different software tools because we were like, we're gonna be the most technology savvy agency that's ever existed because we're young entrepreneurial and we were just working at tech companies, we know this stuff. Um, and what that turned into was us using, you know, Basecamp and Asana for project management, so like out of the box stuff. Then we're using Dropbox or Box for storage. And then we're using uh, some kind of, you know, modern proofing soft software to send a video and then they can mark it up, send it back. Or we're in Vimeo and they're sending links back and forth. And it was just a crazy disparate process. And as we started looking for software platforms for design for us or really our clients, where it's like, hey, you guys are doing a lot of video. There must be software out there that would help you manage this process better we couldn't find anything that was affordable or modern it was like the it was the really high-end tools 
for um, basically like film and like massive production houses, which can do you know everything and the kitchen sink and you name it. Um, or everyone else is using spreadsheets and generic products. Mm-hmm. There was this n- like big gap in what we thought was needed, especially as more creative work becomes a core competency of marketing. It's not something you outsource to agencies anymore. More and more creatives are getting hired, hired internally. Um, and so that was when we started mocking up, like in a perfect world, what could a product look like? Um, and so we started kind of putting this stuff together. We'd send it to our clients, be like, hey, if we were using a thing like this, would that be something you're interested in? They said, yeah, this would be amazing. We don't have anything like this. Right. And then we started sending that out to more people and just having more conversations about like, hey, what do you use? What do you like? What do you don't like? What do you wish you had? Um, and we just found out that everyone has this problem. If you're in the creative space, you're generally unhappy with your toolkit. Um, and that was kind of the impetus to be like, okay, we need to spin something up. So we put together a very crappy version of what is now Slope um, and used that to pitch uh, some investors, some oppor- try to get some opportunities to figure out how we're going to make this happen. And that was when we came across Microsoft Ventures. Um, and Microsoft Ventures was running an accelerator focused on digital work. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, well, that is right in line. We're digital work for creative. Microsoft isn't really known for creative. Maybe they'll think this is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we went out there and we pitched it to them. Uh, when we didn't hear back from them, we talked to everyone that we knew at Venture for America who had ever worked with Microsoft right. just to try to get people to start sending them messages. Basically the same way I got into VFA, <clears throat> mm-hmm. <laughs> which was just persistently finding ways to connect with the people who make these decisions. Uh, eventually we were able to get uh, a couple people to say, hey, you guys really need to talk to these these young entrepreneurs. We went, we pitched them, uh, we got into the final round, went to the selection day there. Very similar to Venture for America selection day. Brian and I were pretty prepared for that. Um, And then we ended up getting in. And so we, two weeks after that, we packed up our stuff from Detroit and headed out west to Seattle where we picked up a head of product from another company in Detroit. And then he helped us hire the engineering team that we now have. And we've been building Slope ever since. So backing up, I've I've never applied to an accelerator. Um, Is that, I mean, is that, Typical that you can network your way into an accelerator, or were you, were you breaking the rules there? Um, we no, we didn't break the rules. The the reality is, I mean that in a positive way, of course. No, no, sure, sure, sure. Um, the a lot of the um, accelerators go and recruit companies, so they'll go to like some of the best um, startup co working spaces in Chicago and New York, and they will kind of say, hey, you know, we're starting this, we've got this program. I think you'd be a really good fit, and they'll kind of like stack the cards to get the companies that they think would be you know, successful in their accelerator to apply. I mean, places like Y Combinator doesn't need to do that because they're getting thousands of applications anyways. But like some of the smaller ones will go and do a lot of that work. And that's what uh, Microsoft Ventures does, where they'll go kind of like find some really exciting companies and try to get them to come be a right. part of the accelerator. We were not part of that. So we already were down a step because we didn't know anyone there. So we felt like, you know, there's nothing to lose. I mean, in any of these situations, there's nothing to lose by, you know, taking a couple steps to try to piece together uh, an additional touch point. Um, and so that was, we just kind of networked our way to the opportunity. So, you know, the, the video production side of this, I mean, was that just not long for this world? Like, assuming you didn't have this insight, could would you have continued running with that or was the writing on the wall for, for that part of TurnPro? No, we were profitable. Like, we could have kept running the business. Uh, it, was, it was actually when we decided to go to software, it was right when we turned profitable. So any reasonable person would have stuck with it for a while longer. <laughs> They're like, wow, running a profitable business probably is a new challenge that we should probably make sure we understand. <laughs> but Brian and I were much more interested in 
the uh, in the software side of it. I mean, definitely me in particular. I, I don't want to put too many words in Brian's mouth, but I was definitely pushing for the software side because I just felt like the selling of video, the uncertainty of what next month is going to bring was just a hard life to live that wasn't that exciting to me. Whereas I thought that the challenges of building software, something I'd been a part of before the two other companies I'd worked at, uh, those were the types of challenges I really enjoyed solving. And I felt like making video for companies is exciting and fun, but it's not solving a problem, right? Like there's lots of videographers out there doing the exact same thing that we were doing. Mm -hmm. Whereas I felt like we had stumbled onto something that was a real problem that people, if we could do it the right way, I thought people would benefit from this and we could make, I mean, I think the VFA ethos is like, we want to add value to the world and add value to people's lives. And I think that creatives are genuinely frustrated with the with the tools that they use because they're not designed for creative work. And so if we could build something that made their lives easier or better, that would be so much more fulfilling than making, you know, 50 more videos this month. Running a business with that doesn't have recurring revenue is terrifying. <laughs> I, mean, I know this. Yeah. I've done it for 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 thirteen years, and and we, we've had years where we, we've grown by a hundred percent, sixty five percent, you know, a hundred percent the year after that, etc. And you know, it's it's slowed down with time, but like the, um, it doesn't matter how much you're growing in the grand grand scheme of things. If there are three days without sales or something like that, you're, you're like, oh my god, the whole world's collapsing, and and yeah. uh, it's very very tough. So I, I think that was uh, <laughs> if you were, if you felt like it was stressful at the time, then it's probably probably a, probably a wise choice to move something that's subscription based yeah. and has predictable revenues. Right. Um, so that that's really that's cool. I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage to to pull the plug on something. Um, and so you do, you get into this accelerator and wh- I mean, what happens? Like, like, you know, take us through what an accelerator experience is like, like where were you at the beginning and, and <laughs> how long was it and how much had you accelerated? So it was a four month program. So wait, March, April, May, June, July. Yeah, it was about a four month program. And when we got there, we were, we had basically a very slim version of the product. It was mostly wireframes. Um, and so we needed to hire engineers we needed to build the MVP and we needed to start getting customers. So we were almost, we were basically at the point of, hey, we've got what we think is a pretty good idea. It's validated by a lot of conversations and by our industry knowledge, Um, but the reality is we haven't built it yet. Um, And so what was amazing about Microsoft is that you are now, we were now in with one of the, you know, leading software companies in the world and hardware companies in the world. And so they had three, standing CTO people just at the accelerator every day hmm. where we could just go talk to and pick their brain. Right. And basically what we did is we just used them as our kind of it's amazing. vetting net. So what we would do is we were like, hey, these, this is what we're thinking about for our infrastructure on the product. What do you think? And they'd be like, that's crap. That's crap. That's not a bad idea, but I would do this. Mm-hmm. And they would, they really helped us like think through some of the, the challenges that, you know, we're not technical founders that we would have had no idea about. And they helped us kind of understand that. And then as we were hiring engineers, they were our final interview. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. They agreed to just grill <laughs> every engineer we brought in. And we're talking about three veteran software engineers right. that would just grill them. And it was amazing. And so we ended up finding a, a, a great engineer uh, who came in and got the product from zero to one, just off the ground. And we were able to get some paying customers on it. Um, and then we hired two more engineers, younger guys after that. Um, and then one, and then we let go one of the engineers and then we kept building. And, uh, and now we have uh, a team of three engineers, 
amazing. They're completely refactoring the product right now to make it completely scalable. Uh, we only launched in September. Um, so it's been kind of a wild, I just went all over the place yeah, with that answer. No, but <laughs> super. I'm not sure, remember, don't remember what I asked, but it was a great answer. The, the, so, and, and so you mentioned that, like, you know, you, 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 you had this, you know, you had some early engineers, you let one go, like, you know, t- I mean, take me, take me through that. Like, is that, is that, you know, you guys aren't software developers. You got these CTOs helping you. Um, you know, is that just inevitable? Like, is that you know that you're going to have to test some people out, figure it out? You know, it's it's like a startup is so fragile, right? So to like hire the wrong person, so to speak, and then see yeah. that person go is tough. Um, is that just an inevitable part of, of growing a, growing a small tech business? I think so, but I, I think that we were also in a pretty unique spot of not neither of us are even remotely technical. Um, so I think that we, early on, we got burned a couple times by people that would overpromise and then under deliver on the engineering side. And it took us a while to really figure out what that meant. And so we actually went through three different technical heads mm-hmm. before we have land, before we landed on our current team. Um, and yeah, I mean, it sucks. Like you, you know, you're burning cash, you're burning time. Like that all is the recipe for a startup failing. But I'll say Brian and I are pretty scrappy when it comes to finding ways to stay alive. Right. Uh, there have been times where we've been out of money completely and we secured an interest-free loan. There have been times where I've taken my money out personally to pay salary. There have been times when um, we had an investor transfer the money just before payday. Right. Like There's been a million right. ways where we've just found ways to get it done. And I think to me, there are a lot of people who can have ideas and even execute on the ideas, but the question is, can you stay alive? Right. The more entrepreneurs I found that I've spoken to and 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 met with have told me that, yeah, I was like, hey, yo, you got you guys got bought for X, you know, amazing sale. He's like, dude, we literally ran out of money the day before. Right. Like no one was getting paid next week, right. and then we got bought. Right. Like there's all these stories like that, and he said the only thing I can tell you is cut your own hair and eat a lot of pizza, <laughs> right? Like it's just, and I think that Brian and I share that mentality of like, we're going to do whatever it takes to stay alive and hope that something good happens if we stay alive long So enough. what is your cut your own hair? Give me, give me the example of the way you've been personally scrappy. Uh, well, I mean, cut, you got a heck of a haircut, so I'm assuming right. you're, not, you're not cutting your own hair. I'm not cutting my hair, but we did, we, we got uh, some funding uh, in August. So we raised a million dollars from Second Avenue Partners out of Seattle, which are some of the early Microsoft guys. Um, and so I'm out of the cut your own hair phase for the moment. Um, <laughs> but we definitely had our kind of, you know, eat lots of ramen, uh, cut your own hair, don't go out to meals, don't go out on dates or take your girlfriend out. <laughs> <laughs> Were you able to pay yourself back from from the money from your yeah. own money that you've that you put in? Yep. So we've been able to pay back uh, the money that I put in and the money that Brian put in. Um, th- those loans have kind of been covered. Um, but yeah, now now we do have like a small salary and we're, we're, we have livable lifestyles, which is right. great. Um, and that allows us to, again, free ourselves up to be like a little more creative and think more about the business instead of just surviving. So when you go and pitch a bunch of guys who founded my, or, or early stage Microsoft, mm-hmm. you know, what, what are you, what are you saying to them? Are they, are they like highly, highly technical um, and really real numbers guys? Are they, are they like, you know, nostalgic guys who are like this, you know, Dan guy reminds me of me when I was this age and he looks like he's working hard and he, damn it, he's going to get there. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, I feel like we, we pitched every type of person there is. And we've learned a lot about who we need to talk to and who's going to be a good investor with us. Um, we've talked to hardcore VC firms who only ask about the metrics We've who, you know, if you're pre-revenue and you're <laughs> you don't have any of the metrics that they need to make mm-hmm. an investment, 
And if you didn't do your homework and they only invest in companies that have a million dollars of revenue, you look like an asshole. Right. Um, and so we try to avoid those situations. Right. So we've done a lot of uh, angel investors and then the VC firm that we went to, uh, which are really, they're really just a, a group of, of kind of super angel investors. Uh, it's their own money, there aren't limited partners, um, and they can kind of make decisions on their own. They don't need to make take votes and things like that. Right. Um, and so I think for us, we've approached this as we're pitching a vision right now. Like we don't have the the kind of like hard metrics to show this type of growth or this much revenue or this much increase in customer growth or anything like that. It's much more right now about like, this is what we understand about the market. This is what we understand the problems are. This is how we're solving the problem. We've talked to thousands of people now who feel this pain point and they, they're they using tools. And we've talked to people who are using the generic tools and the specialized tools. And you talk to the people who are moving from the generic to the specialized and everyone's unhappy. Mm. In my mind, that's a huge opportunity. Right. And it's like, you can either believe that or not. And mm. if you have no idea what creative the, about the creative world, then you're taking my word for it. And then the question is, do you trust me? Mm-hmm. And the advantage that I think Brian and I have is that we are very, very honest and straightforward guys. We're not the typical, I think like, no offense to Silicon Valley, but like, we're not that inflated. We don't, we, right. we don't really, we're not good at like selling this like, you know, $30 trillion market, right. I'd rather just tell you what we understand and how we're going to address that. And then here's our plan for the next, you know, six to 18 months. Right. And if we don't do that, we need to reassess. But I think we understand that stuff really well. Right. And so it's taken a long time for us to find the investors who trust us with our real story instead of like wanting the fake story in mm-hmm. some ways. Mm-hmm. Interesting. No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a straight shooter. I, I certainly appreciate <laughs> that. The, uh, you know, but I mean, now, so now, now that you've got these guys, you know, with a, you've raised what about a million and a half bucks? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have, you have a board. Like you're you're answerable. So how does how does that change your dynamic and uh, you know with you and your founder and your company? Yeah, I, you know, I think the having so Pete Higgins is is on our board, and he's been absolutely great. I mean, you know, they definitely hold us accountable. Um, we we have bi- pretty much biweekly meetings right now. Um, and the reality is it's great just having experienced business people looking at the company and, and really asking us about, you know, is this an, a reasonable goal that you're setting on sales when it's just you and Dan doing sales? Or like, when are those other features coming? Are you getting people to who are saying that they'll buy when they have when we have the new features? Like, how are you following up on that? Do you have a list of those people? Um, there are people. I think like it's a little less flying by the seat of our pants and a little bit more like every two weeks we get to check in and think about the business from like a bit of a higher level, which is so helpful. And, and I think the best thing about uh, our board right now is that they just kind of understand the stage we're at. They're not trying to push us further than we need to be pushed. Like we come back and we tell them we've made XYZ sales and, they, and we're only three months out from launching the product and Brian and I are super frustrated. They're like, guys, you made right. some sales with a product right. that is young, <clears throat> you know, and you're, and you're, and you're decreasing the, the sales cycle and you're tracking it. That's all good stuff. You don't need to be this critical on yourself. Right. Keep hustling. But like, understand and celebrate the wins, and don't just be so heads down that you can't. So, I mean, that leads me to my next question, which is like, now that everything's live, you've got some customers, you've got some money in the bank. You know, are you are you sleeping well? <laughs> are you sleeping better than you did? You did you sleep poorly? Maybe you're you're a pretty chill guy. You know, you got a smile <laughs> on your face. Maybe you've been sleeping really well all along. But you know, does the intensity 
pick up? Is it possible the intensity picks up even further? Uh, you know, as you're as you've gained this momentum, and and it's even harder to to sleep at night. Um, I would say the the sleep issue is interesting because I think that as a as a founder, like from the moment we started wearing these hats, there's just so many things to think about, and there's a million things to think about that you didn't even know you needed to think about. Like when we started like when we offered health insurance and like when we raised the round and we decided we were going to offer health insurance, mm-hmm. I've never gone and looked at healthcare plans. Uh, it's so cumbersome. I, yeah, there's, there's, and then there's the, there's just so many things that you're trying to do right. And like right. do right by your employees. And it's not just your life anymore. Like once you raise money and start hiring people, all of a sudden you're responsible for a lot more people. Right. And I think, for Brian and I, a lot of our anxiety focuses around, are we doing right by the people that are working here? Um, and so that comes down to like, we're not, <laughs> are we doing all of our tax information correctly? Like, right. is there, what are the things that could possibly kill us well, that we need to make sure we're on top of so that like all the people who depend on us to do the right things as founders can just do their jobs? Um, so I think as things get more complicated as the business grows, that is what our anxiety focuses around. I think that we ha- Brian and I have just a great <clears throat> dynamic again ab- around sales and we're we've got a, a really nice hand up so like Brian does all the marketing and kind of top of the funnel stuff and then we both tag team the demos and then I do all the customer success onboarding kind of like converting to paid customers and that system really works and we complement each other very well and so so I think a lot of the anxieties that come with being like a single founder with a technical person mm-hmm. where you're doing all of that we don't really have like we trust each other to do the right things um, which is a very odd thing because when someone's like, you don't have a technical co-founder, we're like, right, but we hired great engineers. Right. So like, why do you care if it's us <laughs> coding? Why does that matter? Right. Right. Um, right. So it, it's been interesting now that we have this base and we have people we trust building it, um, that the stresses have become much more about are we operating this business properly in a way that is going to actually allow us to be successful or is there a blind spot that we're missing that mm-hmm. like someone didn't tell us about or that we just omitted um, so that's kind of what keeps us up at night red uh, tape is, is, is really frustrating to start you just don't like I, I remember filing my taxes um, I was I was paying the right amount but I was paying it like quarterly when I was supposed to have switched to like monthly or something mm-hmm. like that or monthly I was supposed to switch to bi-weekly right. I was paying the right amount and I ended up getting like a, a $12,000 bill I, I almost had a heart attack yeah. um, you know, at the time and I called the, the IRS and they were actually surprisingly good about it but it's mm-hmm. very hard to know yeah. what you don't know well, um, and then there's all the business insurance yeah. but like all the things you're liable for as you if you're storing people's data like yeah. and you need yeah. to you know there's just an interesting kind of gray space that's being sorted out right now and so just trying to make sure we have our bases covered, I would say that's been like the bulk of the stress for us. But, you know, at the end of the day, like we're either going to hit our like we're either going to hit our numbers or not. Right. And I think that to me feels so much more controllable and exciting than everything before where it was just like, I don't know if we're going to be able to raise money. I don't know if we're right. going to be able to actually build the product we want to build. But now that we're getting to do that, it's exciting. And I love that. It sounds like you, you and like you guys are great partners. Um, mm-hmm. So. You know, what do you guys have? Is there any intentionality in terms of how you've designed your partnership? Do you, know, do you guys check in every Friday or something like that? Or is it just you just ebb and flow and, and go with it? Um, there was a while. We definitely, I mean, we talk probably every single day, just like we'll like pull each other aside and be like, hey, I want, we need to go over something. Um, we've been trying to do a better job of actually not talking about business necessarily, but saying, hey, we need to go grab beers together. Or hey, we need to go like, we're gonna go to a movie. Or like doing things that keep our relationship strong outside of the company because at the end of the day, 
we need to keep getting along. Right. <laughs> we yeah. need to keep operating at the same trust and um, friendship and camaraderie, which I think permeates through the organization, right? Like I think when people see us, like, you know, we're at each other because we want the best thing for the business, but we're at each other and we're respectful and we're, um, and we build each other up. And I think that there's a lot of that that definitely resonates, I hope resonates with the company. And, and if there's ever like a big problem between us, that's, you know, that's a major, right. that's something that could absolutely kill the company. So I think right now we're just trying to make sure we are always on the same page. So we're constantly talking to each other about like every single day we're pulling each other aside and making sure we're on the same page about every little thing. And then we do have these check-ins on like, hey, let's just go see how you're like mentally holding up. You know, how's your, how's your fiance? Like, you know, all the things that, you know, you should care about as a co-founder that aren't related to the business. So it's, it's first inning, uh, so much needs to be done. What what are the short term priorities? Can, can you prioritize? What are the short term priorities at, at Slope? Yep. So right now we are wrapping up the refactor of the product. This is the engineering team's focus. Um, they've been doing this for the last three months. This is basically going from like little league to the big leagues of software, like, like high school to college, like high school to college. <laughs> um, and so we are leveling up the product in a big way, uh, which we're really excited about. It's going to mean faster. Uh, iterations on features, it's going to mean more features, and it's going to mean integrations. Um, so that is absolutely, you know, full tilt, the priority of the of the company right now. Uh, Brian and I are on the sales side, so it's just getting people signed up, understanding when they go through the trial, what they like, what they don't like. I mean, we really view every customer we get right now as a partner in building Slope. Um, so for us, it's really about understanding how they're using the product, why they're using the product, what they like, what they don't like, and where are the gaps. And what are the other tools they're using with Slope? Because for us, we want to take over a lot of this space. And so the more we understand about their workflow and the tools they use, uh, the better informed we are about the direction we want Slope to go in for the future. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, we see fundraising again off in the distance. Okay. Um, we never lose sight of it. But uh, right now, it's been very nice not to be worrying about that. Yeah. It's just... Uh, focusing on the product. It's amazing how time-consuming and stressful that can be. Uh, yeah, not that God. I've done it, but I've heard that through enough stories to the podcast. Yeah. Um, so, last question here. Let's let's test uh, let's test the VFA hypothesis here on a scale of zero to ten, with ten being the most impactful. You know, zero being not impactful at all. How critical was VFA to your becoming an entrepreneur? Well, let's see here. I was studying for the GREs, planning to become a history professor. <laughs> I was... Hey, I wrote the question before I interviewed you. I didn't know that. <laughs> I want to wrap on that. Right. And I... So we're giving it like a 12, a 15. And I met my co-founder as my roommate in VFA training camp. Um, I mean, there's... there, And I was talking to someone else about this really recently where... I'm the type of person that like throws myself into whatever I'm doing. Like, there's no doubt that if I were a teacher, I would love it and be very happy with that life. There is no doubt that if I had decided to be a wrestling coach, I would love it and be very happy with that life. Um, and I think that Venture for America not only showed me that small business is something that people with passion can do, even if you have no experience in business at all, but it is something that I think people should do. I think that there is this huge fear about starting companies and like the money involved and 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 that starting a business is only about making money. And I think if you think that starting a business isn't about making money, you're kidding yourself. Starting a business is absolutely about making money. But I, I think that the fact that we have eight people that work for our company right now and that live in Seattle and live full lives and get to go and participate in the things they want to do, buy cars, do like take camping trips and vacations. The fact that we get to allow that to happen because we 
have a company that employs them is so crazy. Like 20 year old Dan would have never, couldn't have ever imagined that future. And VFA has paved that path for me. And there's no way I do that. And there's no way I promote the hell out of Venture for America. And like, if you're a dance major starting a company or like opening up a yoga studio, it's like, stop working for other people. Go start your own thing. Mm -hmm. I think that it's an important thing that too many, uh, that more young people could be doing if they just believed it was possible. And VFA is trying to, again, provide that toolkit to make that possible. I don't think there's any better way to uh, wrap the episode than on that. So thanks so much, Dan, for coming and sharing your story, and uh, and congrats on your on your success with Slope. And uh, thank we'll, you very we'll much. Continue to keep our eye on you as uh, as the company grows. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.